The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome back my favorite children's book author, Catherine Pryor. She's an award-winning book author who writes children's books for growing minds. She's also a good food advocate who has worked to create better food choices at institutions, large corporations, and food banks. Her books are widely praised and used extensively in school garden curriculum, nutrition education, and anti-hunger initiatives. Her growing list of book titles include Zora's Zucchini, Sylvia's Spinach, Hello Garden, Bees Bees, and most recently, Spring is for Strawberries. Her lyrically written and beautifully illustrated children's books invite children into the magical world of nature, introducing them to the gifts of good food, family, and friendship. Catherine holds an MA in Environment and Community with a focus in local and sustainable food systems from Antioch University, Seattle, and a BA in Media Production from Northern Arizona University. She lives with her husband and six-year-old twins on Whidbey Island off the coast of Washington. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much. It's so great to be back with you. Every time you come up with a new title, I am so excited to see beautiful images, beautiful writing. It's always a heartwarming story with subtle messages about protecting nature and the joys of food. So I love this new book. But before we dive into it, I want to talk a little bit about your history. When I first met you, you were working as director for Washington State's Healthcare Without Harms Healthy Food and Healthcare Program. It was a very important position. Why did you decide to move to children's book authorship? You know, it, it's funny because I loved both jobs so much. For a while, I juggled both and it was absolutely wonderful. But the reason I found myself in kids' books is I think it goes back to the very first short story I wrote as a seven-year-old in second grade because that very first short story I wrote I remember thinking, oh, you can just make a story from nothing and then share it with the people around you. And to me, that seemed like sort of magic. And so I grew up a kid who was a voracious reader, but who also just loved creative writing. And I didn't really think of it as a career opportunity But then in my 20s, I decided to give it a go and try to be a novelist. And so I spent several years waiting tables and bartending and writing novels that nobody wanted to publish. And finally, I got really tired of living that hand-to-mouth life and decided to go back to graduate school. And I had become really passionate about food and farming issues while I was in the service industry. And I decided to study food and farming for my graduate work. Graduated from that, and I found myself 
running this incredible program, organizing hospitals around the state to change the types of food that they bought and served in their cafeterias and patient meals. And it was phenomenal because we were funneling all of this money into local and sustainable products and changing the way that both our regional farmers were able to sell in regional markets and also changing the type of food that were available through national distributors. It felt wonderful. But at the same part of me, there was still that seven-year-old inside who loved writing and loved telling stories. And so I found myself waking up an hour before my alarm went off every morning and I would just sit and write because it fed something in me. And one time I was in a meeting about farm to school funding in our state capital. And a dad told a story of how his little girl wouldn't eat spinach until she grew it in her school garden. And all the other advocates in the room were saying, oh, we should write a white paper about that. Oh, let's try and do a press release about that. And all I could think was that would be a great idea for a children's book. And that book went on to become my first picture book, Sylvia's Spinach, which now in her 11th year has by some miracle sold over 100,000 copies, which is unheard of for, you know, a debut author from a tiny little press. But for some reason, the book resonated with people. So it's it was a long way of getting to writing kids books about food, but I've found a new way to connect with eaters and hopefully change and create some lifelong eating habits. I wonder if you hear from any of the students whose lives you've touched. Do you get letters or comments from parents who've read those books to their kids? And do they say, oh my gosh, you know, my daughter wants to eat spinach now too. Yeah, I do mostly hear from the parents. I will say my target readers are still often working on mastering the alphabet. So right. I don't necessarily get the thank you cards. But I have a ton of parents who have told me, oh, now my kids eat spinach and they never did before. Or, you know, it's how they use the taste test to try something new. And then I've had a lot of kids, and this has actually been one of the cool things, send me pictures of the flowers that they plant for bees in their garden because of bees' bees. And now I'm getting, with this new book out, I'm getting to have all kinds of conversations with kids and their parents about their favorite foods for different seasons. And so I feel like for me, I just keep trying to find new entry points to have this conversation with kids and with families about the types of food that we eat. I think we underestimate the power of children's literature. And that is what I love about your books. They all send an important message. And I wondered if your work on food issues, you have had some remarkable jobs. You've worked with Food and Water Watch. You've worked with the Washington Toxics Coalition, the Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility, and of course, Healthcare Without Harm, and more. You've had other jobs where you've gotten organic plant starts into low-income children's gardens. I want to know if your previous work experience has informed your children's books. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had so many conversations with kids, particularly about how excited they got about growing food and thinking specifically about South Park Fresh Starch, which was a program my then boyfriend, now husband and I started right out of graduate school with a 
food bank in a part of Seattle that is considered food insecure. And we were handing out organic vegetable plant starts during growing season. And one of the things that we heard when we were doing some follow-up research to find out how it had gone was one, we found out that most people were able to grow food at home. But I think the most incredible feedback that we got was how often the kids in those communities were eating the produce that was grown at home. So a kid who might see a tomato just on the kitchen counter and think, ooh, yuck, tomato, sees one ripening in the sun, goes over and just plops it in their mouth. It's a completely different experience of those early exposures to something like a tomato, one of those foods that might not be considered a kid-friendly food. That to me was really powerful. There is really something in the magic of growing food that speaks to children and encourages them to try foods that they might otherwise not. I couldn't agree more. And reading to children is such a wonderful thing to do, especially as the seasons change, there are different inroads. So with spring and summer, what better time than to inspire a child to grow some food in their own personal gardens? Even if a child is living in an apartment, having just a pot of something like an herb or a little tomato plant, something that they can grow, that they can help feed themselves. It's extremely empowering. It really is. And that's one thing I always try to to send home is like, you just don't have to have a huge, massive garden. You can do just a pot of cherry tomatoes on a sunny balcony, but then also trying to be an advocate for things like school gardens is amazing. I volunteer in my son's school garden once a week. I go out there with one of the garden classes, watching kindergartners run through that garden, although they're not supposed to run, many of them can't help it. And just taste a little of this and a little of that. If you tried to give that to them in their school lunches or like in their lunchbox, they might not take it. But when they're out there picking it themselves, they are so proud and so excited. Exactly. Okay. Well, all of your books are not only beautifully written, they're also beautifully illustrated. And you have worked with several illustrators, Ellie Peterson, Anna Raff, Paulina Gortman, How do you find the illustrators to so beautifully match your words? You know, most of the time there is an art director and an editor who are having most of the conversations between like what art should go here? Should we cut this? Should we not? However, this book, it was the most collaborative book I've ever worked on. It was sort of a small world connection. I knew Paulina because we belong to the same professional organization here and very small world. She's good friends and in an art critique group with Ellie Peterson, who illustrated Bees Bees and also Monarch book that I have coming out later this summer. And when I had Schiffer Kids interested in doing this book, they asked if I had any illustrators in mind. And I suggested Paulina because I had seen how incredible her work was. And I had heard through the grapevine that she was in a good place for a new project. And I could not be happier. This book would have been completely different without Paulina's work. So it's a book about produce seasonality. And I, in my head, when I was writing it, had the vision that it was a group of children who lived in an apartment over a city farmer's market, and they were experiencing seasonality through that lens. 
The publisher, however, and my editor at the publisher wanted it to take place on a farm, which you have read it. The language is sparse enough that it could go either way. And Schiffer is actually located in Pennsylvania farm country. It used to be a working farm in addition to a publishing house, although they now, I think, lease their land to a local dairy farmer. And they were very passionate about portraying the sort of rural life. I wanted it to be this sort of city life that a kid in a city could understand. And Paulina came to us both with this idea that she could bridge the divide with a friendship story. And there would be one child who lived on the farm and their family was bringing their crops to a city farmer's market. One child who lives in the city whose family is shopping regularly at that market, the friendship that grows between them over the course of a growing season. And then you so you get to see them each in their element. You know, what makes living in a city special? What makes living on a farm special? But we really got to see both of those worlds. And that wouldn't have happened without Paulina's vision. It's beautiful. Catherine, we need to take a break. And I need to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Catherine Pryor. She is a children's book author. And these books bring food and gardening, the natural world, humanity, compassion, all of the things we need more of to have a more compassionate world to life. So we are going to dive into Spring is for Strawberries. It is your latest title. It is about spring and strawberries and so much more. As you say, it is about eating with the seasons. And I certainly used to buy strawberries in January decades ago before I realized that there really is a difference. And what I so appreciate about this book is that you talk about how, yeah, there are benefits to having this global system where you can have anything you want just about any time of year, but there's something so much more magical and important to eating seasonally. And so this book dives into what is available during each season. And I can just think of all of these educational opportunities, especially when farmers markets are in full swing. And so many more communities are having year round farmers markets. So it's great to have this opportunity to share this book all year long. And the last page of your book, and many of your books are like this, you give the adult reader some background, you really dive into the power and benefits of seasonal eating. Do you want to talk about why you think that's especially important for children to learn? I would love to. So You know, it's interesting because I write books about food and gardens. I've spent a lot of time at farmers markets, in school gardens, on farms, talking to kids about food. And I noticed that over the years, one of the things that came up again and again and again was why the food that they saw in the school garden or at the farmers market was different than the food they saw in the grocery store. And so I would usually have just a quick overview conversation about produce seasonality But it really got me thinking about what a gap there is in, unfortunately, most children's knowledge of how produce seasonality changes different times of the year. So I kind of knew there was a need there, but it really got brought home when my twins were about two years old. They had been eating asparagus since they could eat solid food. It's sort of a great food for little hands to grip and you don't need more than about four teeth to really eat it. So it was something that they'd had early and every spring I would bring in a lot of asparagus to serve. 
And when they were two, they finally had the language to kind of be like, well, where did the asparagus go? Now it's summer. Why aren't we eating our favorite food anymore? And I had to try to explain to two two-year-olds that if we tried to get it at this time of year, it wasn't going to taste as good because it was going to come from really far away. And I remember thinking like, oh, there's no way they're going to grasp this. They're way too young, but they got it. And they stopped asking and we moved on to other vegetables and fruits. And it really got me thinking about why don't we talk about produce seasonality with kids at this very young age so that they can grow up understanding that concept. Yeah. And grow up with anticipation. Like, yeah, the strawberries and the asparagus in the spring, they're great. But oh, wait, what's coming? Next, we're going to have zucchini and we're going to have squash and then apples as you go through the different seasons in this book. It's almost like helping a child learn what they can anticipate next. That was really my hope. And it's hard to do it on a way that encompasses all of these different growing zones across the country that I'm hoping to reach. But we really did our best to keep it to crops that many places would be seen in those particular seasons. And to me, strawberries are really a perfect example of the importance of local food systems. So I ended up focusing on strawberries for the title, one, because who doesn't get excited about the idea of that? But also because here where I live in the Pacific Northwest, strawberries are the first sweet food that we see. And it's really like once you start seeing those strawberries come in, you know that you're at the start of a really amazing food and you're about to be moving on from like root vegetables and all the amazing leafy greens and all that stuff. But it's all savory food up until we see strawberries. And so I thought that was the perfect fruit to start with to get kids thinking about it. And then the other reason I really wanted to talk about strawberries as an important regional food is that there are over 600 varieties of strawberries in the world, but most people are really only familiar with a few of them. And that's because large-scale growers have to prioritize strawberries that can hold up in shipping and stay fresh longer. But that means that most people are only familiar with those varieties. And it's a little bit like eating a red delicious apple and thinking, this is an apple. You wouldn't be wrong, but you're missing the complexities of what that fruit can be and the many different flavors and textures that you could get by seeking out other varieties. I know a few years ago when we moved to Whidbey Island from Seattle, we realized that we were surrounded by all of these amazing local berry farms. And one of them in particular grows what I call the perfect strawberry. It is the perfect balance of tart and sweet. It is the most gorgeous, vibrant red color you've ever seen in your life. It's smaller than you would see in a grocery store. And so all of the flavor is sort of concentrated into one bite. But as we learned the hard way, if you don't eat them or process them in about 24 hours, they start to grow mold. So it's a perfect strawberry with a very short shelf life. And if you don't buy them within like a day of their harvest, you'll never get to know what that tastes like. And so to me, I think strawberries are 
perfect example of one of the many reasons local food systems are important. I could not agree more. And you also talk about the value of unexpected varieties. So even within a single farmer's market, if you are so lucky to have access to one, and if there is more than one grower there who is producing strawberries, I like to do a taste test to see which farmer has the best tasting berries. But that is not available in a supermarket. And I used to belong to a slow food chapter, and we had a program where you'd go into the school and the instructors would share a tomato from a local farmer versus a tomato that came from the store. And the kids got to decide which tasted best. And of course, there was never really a contest there because as you say, the closer that you pick it to when you eat it, the flavor is better, the nutrients are better. For so many reasons, it's better to have that local food system in place. Yeah, it's really true. And I love the idea so much of pairing a taste test with a book. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons kids get so excited about being in a garden, being in a farmer's market. It's where there's all of these different sensory things that they can try and they can make decisions about which one tastes better. Which one do I like more? Because kids are still figuring out what they like in the world. And there's really no better time to start introducing them to these concepts and these flavors. And as you say, not only when you have a child growing it in a garden, that's like a magic cure for kids that won't eat, say, spinach or zucchini or anything else. But when you have a story and then the food to go with that story It really is a magic process for all of the parents out there who say they have picky eaters. You've got the solution right here. I hope so. I I always am really hoping that somewhere out there, there's a parent like, oh, phew, my kid, like, tried a bell pepper because I saw a kid in a book eating it. (laughs) Right. Well, not only do you have important topics told in the pages of the book, But as I mentioned earlier, you also have messages for parents to better understand the concept. And each one of your books brings home an important food and environmental message. And I remember when we did an interview about bees, bees, and how we talked about the importance of pollinators. And you could certainly pair bees, bees with any of these books because we depend on pollinators to have berries and to have other fruits and vegetables in our diets. Well, that's what I'm really hoping, you know, and and one of the things that has been so beautiful about having this book come out now, it's my first picture book since 2019. And I did have a board book come out in 2021, but most people still were like in their living rooms and (laughs) didn't really get to promote it much. It has been so incredible to have people trust me as a writer and be actively excited that I have a new book come out. And I've been so lucky to connect with garden educators, elementary educators, people who are working in food access and nutrition. And I think now they're starting to trust that they can pick up one of my books and hopefully find it helpful in some way to help them convey the messages that they need to. Mm-hmm. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that in addition to this great new book, you've got another book coming out in August of 2023, and the title is Home is Calling, The Journey of the Monarch Butterfly. Why did you choose that topic? 
that is one of the great heart projects of my life. And I will just say, I started working on this book almost five years ago now. Sometimes publishing takes a very long time. But I started working on that book years ago when Ellie and I were wrapping up the production of These Bees. And somebody said, have you ever looked at monarch butterflies and doing a book about butterfly gardens? And because I live in one of the few places of the country that we actually don't have monarch butterflies here because milkweed does not grow. Mm. I hadn't really thought about monarch butterflies, but the more I started to read about them, the more absolutely amazed I was at this tiny creature that goes on this epic voyage from oftentimes they're going all the way from Canada to Mexico in one go in the fall. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And it also is one of the few books I've had a chance to do that has sort of tied all of my passions together, both the importance of biodiversity, the importance of protecting species how we can, the importance of planting appropriate flowering things. So these incredible creatures have food to eat along the way. But then also we got to touch on things like climate change in a kid-friendly way. Um, And also looking at the incredible danger that industrial agriculture poses to the very existence of particularly the Eastern monarch butterflies. Because one of the things, unfortunately, that happens when you apply herbicides over a wide range of land is it kills all of the flowering weeds, including milkweed, which, as many people know, is the only food that a monarch caterpillar can eat. So it's one of the most important food sources for monarch butterflies. And if it's being wiped out from agland, if it's being wiped out from roadside ditches and things like that, It's really, really important that people in those regions plant it so that these incredible creatures have a food source on their journey. But I think it also gives us another way to talk about some of the hazards of the chemicals that are used in large-scale industrial agriculture. Mm. As well as on lawns in communities where we tend to see insects as all bad And so we spray whenever we see something that we're not familiar with. And so I think the beauty of the messages in this book and all your books really is to show how we're all connected. And you teach us how to not only eat well, but also to protect the environment that supports us. I hope so. I really think kids have the power to convey messages in a way that their parents will hear. And if a kid comes home from school and wants to talk about why their parents shouldn't spray that on the lawn, why they shouldn't worry about yellow dandelions, why, in fact, yellow dandelions are a great thing to have in your lawn, that might get their parents thinking a little bit differently about some of their practices at home. Mm. Well, all of your books are powerful. I recommend curling up with children as often as you can to read these beautiful stories and then have a beautiful meal together. But we're out of time. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Catherine Pryor. She is an award-winning children's book author. She writes children's books for growing minds. 
Her website is www.catherineprior.com. Catherine, thank you so much for all you're doing to better the world. Thank you, Melinda. I think your work is more important than ever now, and I'm so grateful for everything that you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.